are listening to the Elephant in the Room podcast with your host, Sutta Singh. Each week, we will bring you a diverse range of inspiring speakers on issues of inequality and inequity. You will hear stories about fairness, justice, belonging, and about best practice for creating a more inclusive workplace. So, if you are an individual or leader interested in a fairer, equitable, compassionate society and workplace, this podcast is for you. My guests on the Elephant in the Room podcast this week are Victoria Ayodeji and Molly Emma. Victoria is an international keynote speaker and a Cambridge University graduate. Molly recently joined Adidas, working in communities as a part of the Murky FC program. Both Victoria and Molly are passionate advocates for social mobility. They also sit on the Youth Advisory Board at Career Ready. Good afternoon, Victoria, and good afternoon, Molly. It's lovely to have you both here today. Thank you for being guests on the Elephant in the Room podcast. And to start with, very quickly introduce yourself. Victoria, would you like to go first? Hi, everyone. My name is Victoria. So I recently graduated from university. So I went to Cambridge and I studied geography. I am also the chair of the Carrera Youth Advisory Board. Beyond that as well, I'm very interested in pop culture. I'm also a DJ. I'm also very interested in storytelling. So whether that's through public speaking, I've been public speaking for the last 10 years. And I'm also very passionate about social impacts. Yeah, so I think that's probably me in a nutshell. And also I'm trying to be a content creator as well. So feel free to follow me on socials. Wow, that's quite an introduction. Marley. That is quite an introduction. I am Marley Ahmed. I'm a graduate from the University of Six. I'm also a member of the Curity Youth Board. I completed the programme in 2017. By the time that this goes out, I'll be part of the first ever cohort of Murky FC, working at Adidas in a community's role within the football space. And I'm also very heavily interested in social mobility, having done my dissertation on social mobility and achieved a first class. Wow. Very impressive introductions. Moving on, Molly, you mentioned social mobility. So what are the experiences from your childhood that you'd say have shaped you into who you are as an adult today? I think essentially, I think growing up in Woolwich, where I've grown up in a council state, it has many pros and cons and I could go into detail all day, but I really do feel like growing up within my community, you had to have thick skin. There was a lot of experience that we went through and a lot of things we saw that made us build up a lot of resilience that has, as I said, many pros and cons. Victoria? Yes, I think for me, it probably all started from when I was pretty young. So I think for some context, I'm an introvert. And I think that oftentimes when you grow up as an introvert or someone who's very shy, so even though I've been doing public speaking for the last 10 years, I was so shy in school. (laughs) I'll be up in age 14. Why is this important? I think that with being an introvert, from a young age, I was always very, very self-aware. So I think I always knew and understood the social issues that were happening in my community. So I grew up in inner city London. And I think that gave me a drive to succeed in life and look for opportunities where possible. So that's pretty much how I then thought more widely about the kind of access to support I can get. So for example, when I was in school, I had access to charities like Career Ready, which is how we're on this podcast. But then also I applied for programs with organizations like the Sutton Trust and Target Oxbridge. 
and that's run by Rare Recruitment, also into University, the Social Mobility Foundation. So these are all charities that operate in the UK and also Outreach as well. And a lot of these opportunities I just found through Google. And I think for me, it kind of showed me that there was access to opportunities for young people from less advantaged backgrounds. And so that kind of got me interested in trying to better myself and get access to different things. And then also, I think then that kind of encouraged me to kind of do the work I'm doing today. So whether that's mentoring, speaking in schools across the UK, but I think also beyond this as well, when I was actually 17, I wrote an essay about social mobility in the UK. So this is back in 2016 when Theresa May was still Prime Minister and I wrote an essay about grammar schools in the UK and whether or not they should be reintroduced. So I think I've been very interested in this topic for a long time. So I think for me, like a lot of my childhood experiences have kind of been tied to social impact education. Even when I was 15 years old, I gave a school assembly talk about education because this is in wake of Nelson Mandela's passing away. So yeah, I've been very passionate about education and like access to opportunities for those who are less advantaged in society. Yeah. So it's very interesting to hear from both of you that very conscious and self-motivated, driven to achieve and excel in what you're doing. How important was educational attainment? Yeah, I think for me, I thankfully went to a school that, yes, they focused on educational attainment. Same with the home. There was a focus on trying to get really good grades. But there also was a focus, now that I look back on it, on holistic learning so I went to a school that really pushed us to make sure we were doing extracurricular activities. For example, when I was 16, I co-founded a project called Youth Go Global, which was basically 15 young people in East London who were fundraising and volunteering to go on a cultural exchange programme to Hungary and then also to Gambia. Again, this has nothing to do with educational attainment, yeah. but it probably had a big impact on my personal development from a young age. So I think for me, Educational team has always been quite important because the way I've seen it is about if you get certain grades, it allows you to jump through certain hoops. But as we know, society, grades are not the only thing that matter. That's the other thing are important for a young person's personal development. Yeah. Molly? I guess for me, there was a push. I think I briefly stayed earlier, and if not, I'll stay now. But I was a first-generation student, so I come from a family of six, a big family. I'm one of the latter middle children, and essentially the only one who probably would complete education. And my parents essentially, I remember studying sociology as an A-level and seeing this, and it's always stuck with me. There was three types of parents when it came to um, educational attainment. The parents that had the three types of capital, the support child, the parents that were disengaged and a, a type of parent in the middle that didn't have the cultural or financial capital in a sense, but really wanted you to do well. And I feel like I was grateful to have both my mother and father in my life who supported me, always pushed me and said phrases like, you can be whatever you want to be, that really, really helped. So I never felt too much pressure. And then I guess at university, I always had my own individual why in terms of why I wanted to achieve my degree, what I wanted to go on to do. And so I guess there was a push from educational attainment by myself. But I think more so it was the experiences that come in higher education. So I specifically applied for Sussex because of opportunities like in my first year, I was able to study via sponsorship at Nanyang University in Singapore for four to five weeks. Or I was able to do internships in my second year because my university had a focus on increasing sociability. So factors like that were also very important to me and helped me stay driven, I guess. 
some of it is like quite eye-opening. Both of you have alluded to it already. What has been the role of the family, teachers, community to get to where you are today? And how critical is it to create a support network to enable students to reach their potential? This is where the role of intermediaries, I guess, like Career Ready or Social Mobility Foundation that both of you have referred to. Yes, I think they're really important. Obviously, there is the cliche saying that a child is raised in a village. But I think having family, teachers, community is really important. And also, and that's a book through mentoring. So for me, a lot of my journey has been enhanced by having amazing mentors who I've met through the charities I mentioned. And also some mentors who I just met through social media as well. So I think it makes a difference in regard to exposure. I always say when if I'm doing my public speaking events that you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And when you do have a mentor who is a lot more accomplished than you, someone who has achieved what you're aspiring to achieve, the opportunities now become endless because you now know what is available to you. I also think that there's a lot to be said about when it comes to access to education for young people. I think as a society as a whole, we all play a role in trying to ensure that young people irrespective of their background, are able to have access to opportunities. I think it makes a massive difference when it comes to supporting these students. And I also think that there is a lot to be said about the difference between emotional support and material support. Because sometimes you might have someone who grew up in an income family where their parents can't necessarily give them material support, but they can give them emotional support by supporting them in regards to what they might want to do. But then someone might come from a wealthy family yeah. where the parents might give them material support, but they might not have emotional support. But then also vice versa, you've got people who come from wealthy families who have their material and emotional support. Yeah. So I think there's a lot to be said about trying to think more holistically about a young person's personal development and also an adult's personal development. We need both the material access, but then also the emotional access to our own personal and professional development. Yeah, so critical for personal growth and development. Molly? Yeah, Victoria hit the nail on the head in terms of it takes a village as a child. And I think that's evident in all walks of life. I think teachers have a key role and they're put under a lot of pressure in various ways. But I think back to science in about year 11, so a couple of years ago, about six or seven. But there was one teacher that would essentially, if it wasn't up to the ball mark and pulling our weight, would stay behind and do extra science lessons. And I look back now and it was just being in that space, still after school, with all focus and kind of gave us all a growth mindset in the sense that a bit before everyone else started revising for GCSEs or A-levels, we would just come together and do some flashcards or do some practice questions. And it was really key to have that space and have a few jokes here and there as well, but then also be able to focus and I believe that all of my friendship group, some predicted C's and so on, we all got B's or higher. So I think teachers have a key role. And in terms of teachers, they have workload and then they unconsciously take on that emotional support element as well. And that's where I'll come into what Victoria said about mentoring, where I thought it could be so effective. And I guess something that I'm going to try and do over the next couple of years and hopefully I have a good enough network and people around me is a bit more focused on sponsorship in the sense if there's any opportunities that arise that any of my mentees I feel like are suitable for, if I know someone in that field or I, I know of a job or role, I'm able to talk highly of my mentee when they're not in the room. And I feel like mentorship is amazing and I'm a big advocate. I have mentors, mentees, but over the next couple of years of my life, I'd like to focus a bit more on sponsorship. 
Yeah, I think that's so critical because at some point people need actual connections and people need to move from that mentoring support to a place where they can see themselves being able to work their potential or do what they can do. Victoria and Molly, both of you are on the Youth Advisory Board for Career Ready. What do you do in that role and how has that experience been? Yes, so basically the Youth Advisory Board was set up in 2021. So both Molly and I were on the very first cohort, Trailblazers. (laughs) The purpose of the Youth Advisory Board is to ensure that with the activities of Career Ready, because it's a youth-centred charity, we kind of want to make sure that young people's voices are fundamentally heard when it comes to different changes, and also trying to kind of foster a really strong community of alumni on the programme. So whether that's ex-students who did the programme, also ex-mentors, and to kind of ensure that you can learn so much from the Career Ready programme. Doing Career Ready when I was in school changed my life. But it's also about trying to encourage and spur on those life-changing moments post the programme. So different experiences that I've had so far was be given the opportunity to speak alongside the CEO Tukumba at events so encouraging employer partners to sign up as mentors that have been very successful so kind of just sharing my journey of career ready I think for me as well running live events so I did an event with a personal branding agency I interned called WOW so it was a co-led event why I worked with my manager Phoebe And we were basically running a session on personal branding and how young people can use social media for good. And we've also run events on entrepreneurship and also done a variety of collaboration events with different organisations, like, for example, Apprentice Nation, which kind of encourage more young people to have access to knowledge on apprenticeships in the UK. And so I think for me, the reason why I wanted to be on the board, but also be chair of the board was I knew how transformational career already was for my own life. For example, I had a mentor who... It's probably one of the most amazing women I've met in my life. Like she really just changed the game for me because for her network, she allowed me to get free tuition for A-level economics in school. And I always tell this story when I speak and everyone's just like, what? That's crazy. And so I think that's kind of why I'm so passionate about mentoring. That's why I'm so passionate about giving back. And yeah, I think we're in its early ages, but I think it's about trying to encourage that momentum post the two-year programme for students to kind of ensure that they're still developing personally, but also professionally. Very well articulated, Victoria. That's why you're into public speaking. Uh, Marley. Yeah, what Victoria said, amazing summary. And I think similar to me, so from Woolwich Common, where I live, where I did my Karedi internship, until I was 17, I'd never been to Canary Wharf. It never comes to anyone from my community's mind. Let's go Canary Wharf for a day. It's, It's not really something you do. But you can see the huge buildings right up in the sky and you're like, wow, like that's amazing. Like I wonder what they do there or I'd, I'd love to just go and see what London's like from that view. And it was really ironic one day myself and a couple of people I'd met on the programme were just all there and we managed to get coffee on, on about the 40th floor in Citibank okay. and we're looking and we're just in awe. We're all from different parts of London or the outskirts of London and we're just like wow like it's it's just such a beautiful and amazing view and I think in terms of the youth board the reason I wanted to get involved is because of that engagement we get to have with young people and I see us in a sense as like a sounding board for any initiatives or ideas they want to come up with as a charity and it's mutually beneficial in the sense that 
they want us to develop governance skills, develop any skills that are transferable that we want to work on, i.e. public speaking. I'm very fortunate to have worked on their ACE event, so it's their event towards the start of the year with, with various schools from up and down the country that come together in London, and I was able to do a sofa Q&A there. And then also at the awards event, I was also able to further do some public speaking in terms of giving out awards. And there's things with, like, in the sense of working with the alumni relationships manager and thinking about how we could further connect and work with our cohorts and other cohorts. It gives us a range of skills to develop and the organisation get a sounding board and some different perspectives on where they can engage with young people. So it's really nice that it's mutually beneficial too, in my opinion. Brilliant. Molly, I noticed that you volunteer with the Global Enterprise Experience as a team leader. What do you do there in that role? See, that was an amazing opportunity that, again, my university offered. And essentially, it was part of a program run, in, maybe in collaboration, I believe, to tackle one of the UN's 17 Sustainable Development Goals. And ironically, I got asked to be a team leader about eight hours before it started because someone unfortunately dropped out. There was people from all around the world, not just the country. I had people on my team who were from Nigeria, who were from China, who were from New Zealand. And you had to cohesively work together, bearing in mind that everyone had maybe exam pressures or work pressures. And you had to work together to come up with a six-page business proposal to tackle one of those 17 sustainable development goals. And you'll be surprised how difficult it is working over time zones with people from different cultures. You have to acknowledge that people have different ways of doing things and to be as inclusive as you can and also foster for different time commitments. So that experience was life changing. It was about a three, four week program. And unfortunately, we wasn't one of the winners, but I feel like I learned so much about myself, about working with various people in different cultures. And it was just generally very insightful and really useful in terms of going forward in the world of work. Yeah, amazing to have that opportunity right at the start of your career to engage with people. It's not easy to build a cohesive team, like you said, with people having disparate priorities. So moving on, I notice this all the time that talent from Black and the global majority groups are often required to or called upon to advocate for the entire group, most of which is not paid work, when all they want to do is be recognized for their skills and their ability to do the job. What are your thoughts on this? Everybody doesn't want to be an advocate. They want to be good at what skills they have. They're an engineer or they are in creatives and they want to be able to design or they want to be able to paint or they want to be able to make products. Yeah, I think it's a very complicated issue. And I think my answer kind of ties to your question in the sense of the importance of just treating people as individuals. There's some people who do want to get involved with advocacy work because they have personal experiences of how important advocacy work has been for their own life. So they want to pay it forward. On the flip side, there's some people who have benefited from advocacy work, but also don't necessarily feel like they need to pay it forward. So I think there is a lot to be said about whether it's an organisation or an institution like a university, who is in power to make these big changes? Grassroots movements are important when it comes to fostering social change, but also whoever is at the quote-unquote top oftentimes has the biggest say with regards to how to generate change in society. So I think there is a lot to be said about how do you kind of ensure that the people who can actually make the big changes are kind of held accountable and how are they actually ensuring that 
they are supporting those who are less advantaged and less privileged in certain institutions and kind of ensuring that burden isn't necessarily placed on them. I think a good example of this, so during my time at university, I did a lot of access work around trying to demystify Oxbridge applications for young people from less privileged backgrounds. And I think for me, that was just like really helpful because I was very fortunate to win a variety of awards that were based on my work on this. But a very good example of, I guess, an institution kind of trying to hold itself accountable is there were a lot of research about how can you kind of encourage better student experience for students who are from a Black and um, British background. So they actually had research and they asked students who are from that background to basically help them with the research, but the students were paid. So I think there is a lot to be said about if an institution has the money, where they decide to put the money shows a lot about them and where their opinions kind of lie. And I think a lot of it is also just about education. Sometimes having those who are less advantaged, hearing from them is important because sometimes a lot of people have a lot of blind spots. If you're not part of a certain group, you may not know that they are struggling with these issues. But it's about what you do next. Once you are educated, how do you kind of ensure that you are trying to be a steward and actually help people in society without putting that burden solely on those who are already disadvantaged and already have massive issues when it comes to maybe like pay gaps or issues when it comes to access to maybe senior leadership. So yeah, it's a very complicated issue. And I think it's really important to kind of know that not everybody wants to get involved with social advocacy work. I think it's going to be very, very dependent on someone's political opinion. But as long as people are not really kind of getting grouped together, I think that's quite important. But kind of ensuring that organisations are putting the money and access to resources to, if there is a certain problem they want to solve, ensuring that those who can solve it are, are involved. There's so much research that suggests that organisations that ensure that their senior leadership team are backing certain diversity initiatives, those initiatives are so much more likely to succeed. For example, you can have a senior leader who is a partner at a law firm who is committed to trying to ensure social mobility in their workplace. Yeah. And all of a sudden, because that senior leader is the one who's talking about their social mobility journey, because they're so candid about talking about their experiences of going from a world-class background to get to this partner, for example, the rest of the organisation now is also on board. So there is a lot to be said, not just about the difference between global majority groups taking on the burden, but then also younger generations, those who are in more junior roles taking on the burden, when oftentimes it's those who are in more senior roles who can actually, in lots of cases, be the ones making the change as well. Yeah, very well articulated. Mali. Yeah, very well articulated, Victoria. And I just reiterate, essentially, I think various groups, various different ethnic groups are not monolithic in the sense that they have different ways of thinking. People within the community view things differently or want to go about certain things in different ways. And I think in terms of like paid work and opportunities, I just think it's very intriguing. There was a lot of commotion, a lot of businesses. Essentially, I think this is the topic of putting money where their mouth was in 2020. When George Floyd was sadly murdered, that was a period in time where it was a catalyst, essentially, for change. There have been numerous killings within America and around the world, and this one managed to be that catalyst and speed things up. And there was a lot of brands and large organisations saying they're going to put this money towards the community as an example, and so on. And I think it's very telling to see where they are now, maybe in two and a half, three years past that, and if they stuck to that. And it's intriguing to see companies' DI strategies and initiatives. Like some are still working on the initiatives and the strategies in place, where others 
have partnered with organizations like Files Black Interns and have internships set up. Some have maybe masterclasses within their business and mentoring and sponsorship. But I definitely feel like it's important kind of to summarize that different ethnic groups are not monolithic and they have different ways of thinking. And it's essentially companies hopefully can just put money where their mouth is currently so we can see that actual investment and equitable opportunities arise. So I think in different ways, both of you have reiterated the points that the communities are not monolithic, treat people as individuals, put your money where your mouth is and look at the situations, look at the customization. Actually, there is a lot of fatigue around equity and inclusion conversations because there are too many conversations and not enough action. What are your thoughts, Molly, on social mobility in the UK? Because we seem we are failing. I mean, this is something that may be true across the world, not just the UK. I know research and statistics show currently that the UK is far behind Western countries, whether it is Europe or US, on this issue. I feel like there's different initiatives and it's important. I feel like I've kind of gone into this mindset where I appreciate organizations and individuals and a handful of businesses that are very heavy on this space. So it's important to give credit to the charity sector, some of the public sector that are doing great space in terms of social mobility and acknowledging that, but then also taking a step back and i.e. from my own research in my dissertation, some of the primary research and secondary research that I saw made me realize how much work we still have to do. And um, as an example, I think I had about 100 participants with my survey from various universities around the country that were first-generation students. And it is shocking how many people don't know about things like Insight Week during your first year of university that can be so, so vital in terms of securing paid work experience in your second year. And in a similar sense, how many people don't feel adequately resourced to apply for their second year internship programs as an example and that essentially can help you out with securing employment post-university and moving up in terms of the social mobility ladder and I think that it's okay for people to go to university their experience have a degree it's amazing I feel like there's so much more we can do as a country both the charity sector working with the private and the public sector to ensure that young people have options in terms of if they want to do an apprenticeship whether that's just an apprenticeship or degree apprenticeship having those options or if they want to go to university having the cultural capital or at least the insight to know about opportunities that are available that can support them during their journey I feel like I believe it was about 30% of people, so 30 out of 100 people had done paid work experience. So there's still about 70% of people from my findings that had no work experience at university and trying to find employment after that when there's a lot of layoffs. It's very competitive for young people with graduate schemes and graduate jobs. And then it can be a downward effect in terms of feeling comfortable in part-time employment or in possibly the retail sector, not being able to apply a degree. So I feel like there's so much more we can do. And I feel like I'd love to see more of a push despite not doing it on apprenticeships because I've seen how beneficial it could be to peers as well. But a lot of progress, but still so, so much to be done in my opinion. Yeah, agree with you totally, Molly. Uh, Victoria, what are your thoughts? I, yeah, agree with Molly. There is a lot to be said about trying to ensure that we are still praising people, organisations, young people who are actually helping trying to address imbalances. I think it's quite complicated because I think, like I mentioned, I did an essay on social mobility when I was 16 and I've been very interested in just researching the topic, white papers, 
and I also sit on the youth advisory board for another social media charity called the Saturn Trust. And I think with the UK in particular, and just with doing any other cross-country comparisons, it's so important to understand the history of those countries. And so when you kind of understand more about the history of those countries, the demographics, migration, the kind of conversation about classism and sociability is going to be quite different for a variety of reasons. And it is a very complex issue because even when it comes to having access to work experience or apprenticeships, you still end up finding that students who do come from low-income backgrounds are still quite disadvantaged when it comes to apprenticeships. They're more likely to get a lower pay post the apprenticeship when they get into a full-time role after their degree apprenticeship, for example. So it kind of shows you more about not to be a cynic, because I am a very optimistic person for the listeners out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just shows you more that, you know, we need to think more about meritocracy and whether or not there is any society in the world that is truly a meritocratic society a society that says that irrespective of how much hard work you do, you can still end up falling short. So there is a lot to be said about, for example, in the UK, there are students who do come from low-income backgrounds who are able to go to a, a quote-unquote very good university, get a first-class degree, and then end up working in the same position as someone who's from a more affluent family who might have got a 2-2 grade or below. But that student who came from the more affluent family is going to end up earning thousands of pounds more over their lifetime. So it just shows you that when people tell young people, get your head down, work hard, get good grades, get a good degree, (laughs) get a good job, there's so much more to it. So one thing that I'm very passionate about is just looking at holistic life learning. So for example, like I've been traveling around Europe and Southeast Asia. One of the biggest takeaways I've learned over the last five, six months is the importance of just having holistic learning. There is no one thing that is responsible for everything so I think yeah there's just so much more to be said about thinking critically about cultural capital even when it came to university admissions I've done so many talks to like thousands of students over the last five years about applying to university and one thing I always told to students when it came to writing their college essay or personal statement as it's called in the UK was the importance of just thinking more about cultural capital I think oftentimes students who come from low-income backgrounds are often told that oh if you want to get into a good university you need to behave like a middle-class student but the advice I gave to my students who got offers from Oxbridge and other Ross Group universities was utilize your own cultural capital so when it came to my personal statement I wrote about how I was from inner city London I wrote about how I had Nigerian parents things are very specific to me as an individual I know most advocates are not going to have those experiences so this is probably more of a wider issue that we need to think about more critically as a society but also just thinking more about cultural capital social capital and being open in, in regards to kind of flipping it on its head. A lot of it's to do with how do we assign value to people? And why is it that certain people who come from certain backgrounds, their activities, their interests are seen as being more valuable than others? The same way that if a student is in school and they're applying to university, they might decide to do a youth campaign about how to stop knife crime in their community. And I've got a good friend of mine who was focused on that and she's been featured in Vogue with the social impact work she's been doing. That kind of stuff you can mention in your college essay, again, that's to do with your social, cultural impact and also your social, cultural capital as well. But on the outside, you think, oh, this has nothing to do with how you're developing yourself. This has nothing to do with how you're developing as an individual. So I think there is a lot to be said about how do we as a society think more critically about social impact, social and cultural capital, economic capital, but then also trying to think critically about our own biases. Yeah, because I think there's a really good book 
that I've been reading called Why Elite Students Get Elite Jobs. And there is a lot to be said about unconscious bias and how if you've got two CVs, if someone has an internship at JP Morgan and they're a student at university versus someone who's had to work every single summer at their uncle's hot dog stand, mm. most recruiters are going to the student who has the internship at JP Morgan. Oftentimes it can be, like you mentioned previously, there's a lot of fatigue around the DEI community. I think for me, one thing that kind of helps me with remaining optimistic is the importance of me just focusing on what I can do now with what I have now. So whether that's me mentoring young people from less advantaged backgrounds or speaking in schools or at businesses or at universities, there's always something that we can do as individuals, even if we think it's small. Those small little changes accumulate into bigger things that can create a positive ripple effect on society. And by me mentoring, you know, 30, 40 students, those 40 students will then go on to mentor other people. And again, this is how you kind of create that ripple effect in society. So, yeah, I hope that answers the question. (laughs) But yeah, this is a hugely complex issue. And unless everybody is involved and unless everybody takes some responsibility, I don't think we're going to be able to move the agenda on this and a very good strategy to not getting fatigued is to actually focus on how you are contributing or what you can do rather than getting tired by looking at what other people are not doing. Molly, who are your role models? Who have been your role models? And do you have role models? See, initially, I was going to go with feel like quite the usual answer of like parents. Like, I think my parents are amazing. I get a lot of my character and persona from my father. But there's two individuals that come into mind. And one is Fred Hampton. And that's because of the ability that he had to unify people. So the concept of the Rainbow Coalition. And I think that that was a beautiful thing to bring working class and poor people from the white community, from the Hispanic community, from the black community, all together collectively for social programs, like breakfast programs in the morning, health clinics, legal aid. I think that ability to unify is something that inspires me. And in a similar sense, the person's still alive today. And I just followed them on LinkedIn but someone called Jermaine Craig. They founded Kwanda, and Kwanda is a modern collection pot for black ideas, so with a focus on Africa. And they had a ledger, so everything is so transparent. You can see everything from the website, where money goes in terms of ad hoc tasks, payments to anyone within the company who helps run it, software, and then the various projects that they invest in in terms of micro entrepreneurs in terms of access to water worlds in in Tanzania I've been inspired by whether sanitary products for females in Kenya or Rwanda I think that ability to unify people is something that I take a lot of inspiration from and hope to apply in my life and that's why Fred Hampton and Jermaine Craig are my inspirations in a sense and awesome awesome choices Victoria Yeah, I'd say definitely my mom is one of my role models. Also, the mentors I've had, I think in regards to my business and music, I'm a DJ, so I'm very passionate about music and pop culture. I obviously love Beyonce and Rihanna. I also really love Michelle Obama's work. But yeah, there's so many people, you know, Serena Williams, like just so many people out there who are very inspirational. But I think for me, like probably the common thread of all the role models is people who are very passionate about giving back, but then also people who kind of honed in their craft which inspires me to kind of, you know, pick something <laughs> to yeah. be good at and try and master it. So, yeah, I think there's probably a variety of names I probably missed out. But, yeah, definitely have a lot of different role models. 
Mm, very, very, very interesting. And Victoria, what do you think about the future? Where do you see yourself in 10 years? Like I just said in the question, the future is unpredictable, but what's on your wish list? What would you like to be doing? Where would you want to be with all of the work, et cetera, that you've said? Yeah, I think I'm still kind of figuring out my future. Um, <laughs> I'm in the early 20s, but I think it would be great in the future. And I'm pretty sure this will be true because I've basically been interested in social impact since I was probably in primary school, secondary school. Like I remember when I was in year seven, I was 11 years old. And actually, yeah, I've been interested in, you know, being like a library assistant, helping the librarian in my school. And then when I was in year eight, when I was 13, I would get into school about one hour earlier than the school started. So about mm-hmm. 7.30 a.m. And I'd go and volunteer to be a reading buddy to year seven. So you had a lower reading age. So I've always been very interested in like social impact, helping people. So I definitely see my future kind of working around social impact and also thinking more about the synergy and collaboration between business and society, but then also business, society and government and how those three areas can kind of combine. Yeah, but I'm still kind of thinking a bit more deeply about that. Any any suggestions, please do send them my way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you'll be flourishing and we'll be talking and I'll be telling people, oh, that, that's Victoria. She was in my podcast one day. Molly, what about you? I think in a similar sense to Victoria, I feel like we still have so much time to kind of pin it down. I think that the world is our oyster, especially considering the range of things we've been involved in. Really. I do think that I'd love to be, and I don't even mind this, if it is or not the head of social impact, but I'd love to work in that space for an MNC. And Victoria kind of alluded to it, but I feel like there's so much more opportunity for collaboration between the private sector, the charity sector and government to come together. And uh, so something within, who knows, maybe head of social impact at Adidas, or I'd love some role in a department of education, focusing on specifically the disadvantaged students within our country and how we can support them but who knows I I might go back to university and study to be a teacher or psychologist I think that my current view is take it for the next two years and see I'd love to do a range of things within my career I feel like our kind of cohort and generation are more open to a variety of things within our lifetime especially you only live once I'd love to at least try a few things Yeah, this is so remarkable and beautiful. And definitely, I see this appetite for risk taking. It may not be such a risk, but my generation and the generation before me, we wanted to be in one place. The longer you stay at one place shows that you're steady. You don't want to rock the board. So yeah, I think that's going to be really exciting and interesting. It also gives people the agency to make decisions which so far I think my generation has not had because we've chosen not to take that risk, actually. We're in the last question. So if you had a magic wand, what would you change? Molly, would you like to go first? This? Well, like numerous things. I think the most Molly thing to say, essentially, would be the allocation of resources. And I remember studying economics at both A-level and a couple of modules at university, and the basic economic problem, I think, from my memory, was unlimited wants, but scarce resources. And I feel like that statement or definition is slightly misleading. I mean, allocation of resources, both on the UK scale, but worldwide. I feel like there's a lot of resources, a lot of different things that we need or need to have access to that 
could be shared a bit more fairly and equitably, but that's maybe my optimism and naivety at this stage of life. But that's something I'd love if I had a magic wand, essentially. I'm glad that you are optimistic. I think we need people like you around to sort of carry on and move the agenda on things. Victoria? Yeah, I think a very big question. But I don't know, maybe something that probably came to my mind was just in general having a society where we're all a lot more committed to emotional intelligence, self-awareness and also empathy for one another. Yeah, however that shows up. So if that kind of leads into Mali's point about allocation of resources and also kind of what we've both been talking about over the course of the podcast, access to resources for those who are from less advantaged groups. Yeah, I think a society where we have a lot more care for one another, a lot more emotional intelligence, a lot more empathy for one another, and to be very cliche, a lot more love for one another is definitely something that I'd like to probably change at this age. I might be different in the future. <laughs> in the future. But I think that's so beautiful. It's been such an interesting conversation because I don't get to hear a lot on these topics. Some of the areas I get to hear, but not everything. But it's good to get a perspective from people who are starting out on their journey on what is important to them. And I'm so glad it's like heartening to hear of how much wider y'all think than, you know, like my generation, oh, we need to work. We don't have to do anything else. That's my focus. I have to do well at work or I have to look after my family. Those are the two things, right? Between those two things, you rarely thought of being so expanded. I think we were all young and ambitious and had these visions of changing society, but we didn't do much about it. And so it's so heartening to hear both of you speak about what you want to do and what your passion is while you follow your dreams. So this has been a brilliant conversation. Thank you so much for taking our time for this conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for getting us involved. Thank you for joining us this week on the Elephant in the Room podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on any of your favorite platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And if you enjoyed listening to the podcast today, don't forget to write a review and tell your friends. Sign up on the link in the show notes to receive updates on our guest speakers, blogs and events. And don't forget to tune in every Thursday for new episodes.